over the past seven months, we've been walking through a, a series of messages, and I've titled this Rooted. And you see these symbols behind me? Uh, some of you are still wearing those on your wrists probably, and these symbols are reminders of the good news of Jesus Christ. That's what the gospel means. It means good news. And sometimes the way I've heard uh, the good news talked about is more like good advice than it is good news. If you'll do these things, you can be assured of a place in heaven with God. But the good news is not our action. The good news is what Jesus Christ has done on our behalf. And these symbols represent that. We've talked about the, the incarnation, the story of Jesus coming to earth, in the pers- uh, or, or God coming to earth in the person of Jesus. We've talked about the death, not just a death that happened on a cross, but a lifestyle of giving up his life, of taking up his cross that Jesus showed us. We talked about the resurrection and that God has given to those who are followers of his an abundant, a rich and satisfying life. And then just recently we talked about the ascension, about the good news of the kingdom of God, the Holy Spirit left as a deposit to us. But all of this is past tense language. It's present tense language about what God has done and what he is doing. And over the next few weeks, I want to conclude this series by talking in future tense. What is it that God's going to do? And right now, I've asked uh, the band to, to come up and, and lead us in something. We, we often talk about the word heaven. And if I would have thought about how to, uh, how to do a series like this, the word that would come to mind, heaven would have been the word I would have thought of growing up. But the word I put with this last part of the series is renewal. Because I believe God's doing something that He's promised in these days to come that is about renewal. And in just a moment, the band's going to play a song that you've heard probably on the radio before by a guy named Philip Phillips. The song's Home. And as I heard this song, it really uh, gave me a reflection of what God has promised and I'm excited to share more about in just a moment. But let's, uh, let's listen to this song together. Now, some of you are wondering, what in the world does this have to do with the good news of the second coming of Jesus. And today I want to talk to you about this because this song, maybe better than any other, is one that's pointed me to the message of hope that Jesus brings. Let's pray as we begin our time together in the Word. God, we we ask this morning the prayer that we've been praying uh, as a group of people that Your kingdom would come and Your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, we pray that desperately in a time that we need it. We, we sing just recent, just a moment ago, it, this, is our fa- this is my Father's world. That though the wrongs seem off so strong, and that is where we are, God, You are still the ruler yet. And God, in the midst of all the chaos and the trouble of this world, we proclaim that we believe You're the ruler yet. We believe that You're in charge even when it seems like a good God doesn't seem to be at work. We trust You are at work even as the forces of evil at work as well. God, this morning I pray You would pour through me the gift of preaching so that Christ would be formed in our hearts. It's the name of Jesus that we pray. And everyone said, Amen. What happens after we die? Isn't that one of those key questions that we keep in mind? Uh, And especially as we get closer, we are around people who experience death. We wonder that question a lot. What happens after we die? It's an impossible question to answer because all of us left to answer it are people who haven't been on the other side. But it's a question that I think a lot about, and I think there are times in our lives where all of us do. Our culture has talked a lot about the end of the world. In fact, there's been a lot of predictions about the end of the world, hasn't there? And that's not just true in America, this obsession. It's also true around the world. Anthropologists will tell us that every 
singular culture they've studied has some kind of belief about life after death. But to start this conversation in a way that I think is the right place to start any conversation about the end times, it's to start in a place from, of humility, <laughs> because we just don't know. N.T. Wright has uh, written a great quote that I wanted to share with you right now. He says, all language about the future, as any economist or politician will tell you, is simply a set of signposts pointing into the fog. And that's good news in the midst of political season, that God is the ruler yet in the midst of all that's ahead. It is a fog. We don't know what's ahead, but we've got to trust the one who is in charge. But when we talk about this mystery of God's future, there's a sense in which we have to be humble about what is to come. Jesus was humble about it. Uh, if you have your Bibles, open with me, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians 13. It's a passage about love, but, but more is said there in, in verse 12. I want to read uh, the words that Peter says, and then we'll get to the words of Jesus in a moment. 1 Corinthians 13, 12. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Paul says, we don't yet see face to face. There's still a lot that's unknown in our world, isn't there? But one day we'll get to see God face to face and all shall be made well. Jesus says it a little differently in Mark chapter 13 as he talks about the days to come. Mark 13, uh, verse 32. These are the words of Jesus. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, be alert. You do not know when that time will come. Even Jesus himself is on the earth and says, I, I don't know the date. The Father alone knows the date. So if you're in any, anywhere where someone would tell you about the end of times and would tell you with all certainty everything, I, I think that's a dangerous place to be because we have to have humility when it comes to what's still to come. At the same time, I think Scripture does point us in certain directions that give us hope. Growing up, I would often lay on my bed at night, and I was a thinker. I would think about all kinds of things. It took me a long time to get to sleep, and so my parents had to struggle with the questions I had at that time of night. Now, that's being returned on me with my kids, our, our oldest. But I remember sitting in my bed at, at night and, and thinking about heaven, trying to dream what it would be like. Have you had these moments where you've tried to picture what it'll be like one day? And, and I, I remember this thought of all of eternity, trying to put that in my mind, trying to figure out what is that mean? What's that like? I, we know an end to all things, don't we? Everything comes to an end on the earth. But what is this about all of eternity? In, in fact, in some ways, it wasn't hopeful to me because I thought anything I do would get tired after a while, right? But the commitment of Scripture seems to be this commitment to all of eternity. And I've always struggled to, to wrap my mind around that. My mom would comfort me. She'd come in and say, you know, your, your dad and I will be there and God will be there as well, it'll be a, a great time where we'll get to worship God and be with all of God's people. But here's what I found about people's views of heaven as I've engaged people about this topic. It's that everyone thinks they know what it's like, and it's interesting the places that those images have come from. In fact, there's two different ways that Christians have tended to talk about heaven when I've had conversations with people recently about this topic. There's two views that I want to talk about today. One is the eternal worship service view. You know this view? Like church, church, it's going to be a long church service forever, which some of you are thinking, that doesn't sound like heaven. That sounds like the other place, right? Um, and and, and I, you don't have to say today if it's the singing or preaching you're going to dread most, right? But this is a view some of us have. The other view is something I call the best day ever 
view of heaven. Like, basically, I'll talk about that in a moment, but, but when it comes to this first view, the, the eternal worship service uh, view, if you've ever uh, thought of heaven in that way, you know maybe the angst you have about that. I mean, it's great that God's going to be in the center and, and, and His throne's going to be there and we're all going to surround that throne and offer Him praises, but, but is that really all there is? This cloudy existence is how I imagined it with like harps and unicorns and chocolate fountains? Is this, is this the image you got too? If you've ever thought of an eternal worship service view, this is the way Mark Twain writes about it through the eyes of Huckleberry Finn in that great uh, book years ago. Here's Huck's take on heaven. Now she, Miss Watson, a tolerable uh, slim old maid, had got a start and she went on and told me all about the good place, heaven. She said uh, all a body would have to do there was go around all day with a harp and sing forever and ever. So I didn't think much of it, but I never said so. I asked her if she reckoned Tom Sawyer would go there, and she said, not by a considerable sight. I was glad about that because I wanted him and me to be together. And this is sometimes what we've seen heaven, and sometimes the world looks at our descriptions and they wonder, is this really the best that Christians can do? Does anyone want to fess up that that's been a little bit of an anxiety-producing event in your life? Is, is that really what heaven is? Well, the other view is the best day ever view, which some people opt for as this opportunity to kind of live out your best day on repeat for eternity. You ever had this imagination before of what paradise, right, of, of what it might look like one day? I've always had this, this dream of what it would look like. I would, I would get up after a long sleep, which is better than the last seven years with little kids, and, and, and after that we'd have breakfast prepared for us. There'd be sausage and bacon. Oh, bacon, I can't, I'm looking forward to it. There'd be cinnamon rolls. The great news is no calories add to your weight in heaven, right? It's a resurrected body. And all this I get to enjoy with my wife and with my kids, and it's a, I long for that. It's gonna be, and then I would get up from breakfast, and then I would walk down Magnolia Lane in Augusta, Georgia. Some of you know exactly where I'm talking about, right? That lane you walk through on the way to Augusta National Golf Club. This is the best day ever in my mind, okay? And, and I would get up, and I would hit that first drive just left of the right bunker in the fairway, ready for the round ahead. This is my picture of the best day. Others of you, it would be different. It might be a fishing, your favorite fishing spot. It might be a table with all of your loved ones that have gone before that you look forward to reuniting with. It, it, for some of you, it would be a, a credit card with no limit on Rodeo Drive every day, right? I don't know what it would be for you. We all have these pictures of the best day and continuing that forever. And in this view, heaven's like your best day on earth on repeat for eternity. There, there's not much of God in this view exactly, but there is a picture of life as we desired. How many of you would say your views fall somewhere in between this spectrum, or maybe on one side of the other? And as a kid, I, I, to be honest, I was excited more about the best day ever view, but I figured it would be more like the church service view, and so I was struggling uh, to make sense of all that. And it kind of begs some questions as I think back about how I came to my views on heaven. Where did that all come from? Where's the picture that I have in my mind coming from about what life in eternity is going to look like? And I'm curious about where your views might have come from as well. I think the most powerful indicator of what I think about heaven, how I pictured, actually came from something called Saturday morning cartoons. Some of you have grown up in a, a, a different age where you have Cartoon Network and Disney Junior all the time. But for me growing up, Saturdays was when kids' TV took over. And so it was so exciting to watch these cartoons. I would wake up excited for this. And I remember one of my favorites was a cartoon called Tom and Jerry, right? Cat and mouse game going back. Many of you remember this. 
And, and on Saturday mornings, I would look forward to this. And, and as I thought about my picture of heaven, I began to realize, I think it was Tom and Jerry and others like it that gave me my picture of what heaven would one day be like, what that process from earth to the afterlife would look like. Maybe it looks something like this. Roll that clip. I don't know about for you all, but that's what I pictured this to be like. And it wasn't just Tom and Jerry. It seems like there was some governing board somewhere that set up set designs for heaven. They all look the same, right? It was these clouds in the sky, those golden streets. We know where that kind of comes from, right? But there was this picture uh, that I didn't really... It was like a progressive commercial without flow in it, right? Sterile doctor's office feel. We get cleaned up to go there and it would all be better one day. In 2011, a LA Times columnist, Joel Stein, went on a campaign to put on Starbucks cups uh, his quote about heaven. And this is what his quote said. He's not a Christian, Joel. But I think this says something about our culture's view. Heaven is totally overrated. It seems boring. Clouds, listening to people play the harp. It should be somewhere you can't wait to go, like a luxury hotel. Maybe blue skies and soft music were enough to keep people in line in the 17th century. But heaven has to step it up a bit. They're basically getting by because they only have to be better than hell. Now, Joel is not exactly coming from maybe Scripture's take on it, but he's on to something in our culture. Because our movement hasn't been known for painting pictures of heaven near as much as we painted pictures of hell. The reason I got baptized was a clear reason, church. (laughs) I had pictures painted for me of what eternal damnation would look like in hell. And I didn't want that, and so I decided uh, I better get in on this so that I can be assured of whatever the other place is. In fact, our movement's most famous sermon, or one of them, isn't what is heaven like, it was what is hell like. We've done a great job of painting pictures of what damnation looks like and what an eternity there looks like, but what I want to do over the next few weeks is paint a better picture of what heaven looks like, to create a longing for what God's new future will be. But I want to point to the way the Bible talks about heaven instead of the ways that Tom and Jerry and other sources did for me. In our culture, heaven sounds a whole lot less real than earth does. And maybe that's why a couple of years ago when USA Today did a poll uh, about heaven, uh, lots of people believed in heaven, but two out of three of us said heaven would be a non-material place where we would reside as ghosts. But that's not at all how Scripture talks about heaven. In fact, Scripture uses all kinds of metaphors about heaven, and a lot of them seem like how you would describe some of our best days on earth, like banquets and parties. He talks about cities, actually, as well. There are these metaphors that it's almost as if one won't sum it all up, and how we think about the end matters, because how you think the story ends impacts how we live life on earth today. And so this morning, I want to take a picture I want to paint a picture from the Old Testament prophets. We'll look at some more of the New Testament in the days to come. But I want to look at how Isaiah gave us a picture of the day of the Lord, the day that's on its way in the days to come. So turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to Isaiah. I'm going to look at several chapters and several pictures and depictions of the words that God puts in Isaiah's mouth to give to us. This is Isaiah 2 is the first place, verse 4 that I want to read from. Says he will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. How many of you that sounds like good news? Isaiah 11, flip a few chapters forward if you would. Isaiah 11, beginning in verse 6. Let me read some more words from Isaiah about the day of the Lord. 
The wolf will lie with the, live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the great calf and the, and the lion and the yearling together. And a little child will lead them. A cow will feed with a the bear. Their young will lie down together. And the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den. The young child will put his hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious. And then finally, in Isaiah chapter 65, one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture, a picture that's painted of the day on its way. Listen carefully to the language that Isaiah uses as he paints a picture of the days to come. Isaiah 65, verse 17. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. Never again will there be an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his years. The one who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere child. The one who fails to reach a hundred will be considered a curse. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them or plant and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain, nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune. For they will be a people blessed by the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear the wolf and the lamb will feed together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox, and dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Let me read one more time verse 17 because I want to key in on this. This is something that Isaiah prophesies, and we see that, that the writers in the New Testament come back to. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. I want you to pay attention to this language that Isaiah uses. He talks about new heavens and a new earth. Now, I grew up thinking that the counterpoint to heaven was hell. And if you were to do a Bible gateway search today, what you would find would be interesting if you were to type in the words heaven and hell together. Guess how many scriptures, how many passages of scripture, those two words end up in the same passage together in, if you were to type in heaven and earth or heaven and hell, zero. But if you were to type in heaven and earth, you would have connections happen between over 150 times in Scripture. Because hell is not the counterpoint uh, to heaven in the Bible. Earth is. The two actually belong together. God made both heaven and earth, and His longing, His desire, and what He plans to do is to reunite them one day. It's the picture we see in Isaiah 65. It's the picture we pick up on, again, in Revelation 21, near the end of Scripture. If you have your Bibles, turn with me, if you would, to Revelation chapter 21. We'll come back to this next week in more detail, but listen to this. Listen to the language of new heavens and new earth once again. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and He will dwell with them. They will be His people, and God Himself will be 
with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. It's as if Isaiah's promise about a new heavens and a new earth when he talks about the day of the Lord is the very thing that John sees when he sees this revelation that he presents to us in Scripture in Revelation 21. In Revelation 21, he sees the new heaven and the new earth. And the picture isn't of God helping us escape earth to some kind of cloudy existence like we see in Tom and Jerry. No, no, no. The picture is the new Jerusalem coming down out of the heavens. And God makes his dwelling place among the people. On the earth is where he makes his dwelling place. He comes to make this place, in the words of the song we sang or heard a minute ago, our home. Which is a bit strange because all my life I've been singing songs about flying away at the end of things. But the picture that's painted in Scripture seems to be a different direction altogether. See, John is clear what he sees. He sees the new Jerusalem coming out of heaven and God making this his dwelling place. Now, if you're like I was when I first came across these verses, you may be a bit confused in this moment like I was because if you watch Tom and Jerry or if you've heard the cultural influences, Dante, you know, that kind of thing, you may have a different picture. But I think the biblical perspective is actually what's pointed out in Revelation 21. Otherwise, what do you do with, with the words of Scripture? In fact, I do want to confirm some things this morning because I know a lot of you, you're, the picture you've had given to you has given you great comfort when your loved ones pass on. And your question is, well, where are they, though, in the midst of this? And I think Jesus gives us some comfort to know the picture we've had of heaven, some of us, actually is a reality that Jesus points to. This is in Luke chapter 23. The question comes, what happens right after death, before the resurrection or the second coming of Jesus? Luke 23, these are the words that Jesus shares on the cross with one of the thieves that are up there with him. Luke 23, verse 39 and following. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what we uh, what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said to Jesus, listen to this question. I think this is a question we all long to ask. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That's what we want. And Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. He confirms to the criminal on the cross, today you will be with God in paradise. You'll be with me in paradise. And those words from Jesus lead me to believe that when we die, there seems to be this initial on that day journey to be with God in some kind of great place. But Scripture says far less about that experience than it does about the hope that comes after that experience. About when Jesus returns to the earth and, and gives what Revelation 21 has promised. Dante had a lot to say about hell and its levels, but the Bible has much more to say about what happens when Jesus returns to the earth. The promise is about resurrection. And sometimes we mistake that word. We think of resurrection as some kind of other existence, but resurrection is the promise that we will have bodies just as Jesus had a resurrected body as well. This is the Christian hope. In fact, one of the early Christian heresies that was pointed out was the view of Gnosticism that said, well, our bodies are bad. And all the earth is bad, so that's going to be done away with, and we'll go somewhere else. It's the view of the immortality of the soul that was preached by Plato, but not by Jesus. And Paul has to correct that in 1 Corinthians 15 and come back and remind people, your hope is a resurrected body, and it's going to be a better body than what we currently have. Can I get an amen on that one, right? 
It's going to be resurrected. It's going to look like Jesus' body is the best picture I have. He's the first fruits of what will happen for all of us. But listen to these words that Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15. This is the Christian hope that we've sometimes forgotten. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 42. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. You see, this has been the hope from the very beginning. And I know this may sound new to some of us who had different pictures, but I want to scratch at some of the pictures we've been given and go back to Scripture to point to what Scripture provides as the hope of God's future. And I want to tell you, it's going to be better than what we have here. God is going to make all things new. But isn't this the prayer Jesus taught us to pray? Praying it the last few weeks. May your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God created the world as good. Isaiah prophesied about a new heavens and a new earth, a, a very earthy pictures of wolves and lambs and children and vipers of swords being turned into plowshares. This is the hope of the world God will bring. He's going to answer that prayer. He's making His dwelling among His people. And one of these days, we can all look forward to living with our resurrected bodies in the new Jerusalem. I speak about this with humility because all of this is like pointing into fog. But the picture John gives us, the picture Isaiah gives us, what was preached from Jesus and what I want to share more over the next few weeks gives me far more hope about the world that's on its way. So welcome to God's good creation. Make yourself at home. Let's close with prayer right now. God, we ask today that you would do what you can, God, to make this world what you want it to be. Help us in some way to serve as signs, as as signposts into that fog, God, of what the world will one day be like. God, we look foolish when we live the way that Jesus taught us to live to those who don't understand it. This foolishness, it just doesn't make sense, God, in so many ways. The cross is foolishness, but to us, it's, it's the saving power of God. And so, God, We commit ourselves again to your future. We commit ourselves to putting on display to the world a future that looks odd, but it is so much better than the violence and the chaos that we're in today. God, we pray you would bring your kingdom, that you would make this place your dwelling. You've done it in the tabernacle. You've done it at the temple. You've done it in Jesus Christ. You've done it in your Holy Spirit that resides in us today. And we pray you do it again as you promised. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.